On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good oil, but you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Yeah, it is time for our Monday's Experts chat and they've been uh, wonderful on the podcast over the last couple of weeks. Make sure you jump online and have a listen to them. It's nice to hear these stories from participants in our game and uh, our story today, looking forward to this. Uh, Will Friedman is a gentleman that we've had on the program before, regularly giving tips and updates on his stable at Scope. But it'd be nice to hear a little bit of the story behind the name, a very famous name in Australian racing. Will, welcome to uh, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure. Let's start. Uh, where were you born, mate? Oh, where was I born? Uh, Melbourne, originally, um, at the women's hospital there, I think. Uh, but um, no, I lived in Melbourne growing up. Um, obviously, racing was. Like racing was a good part of my life to begin with, but it's it's quite an interesting um, it's quite an interesting upbringing because while a lot of people see racing as obviously an entertainment or a betting derived sport, it was part of our lifestyle. It, it never seemed as as uh, significant as probably people would be led to believe. It was. It was always, um, yeah, it was always a big part. We were always going to big race meets. But when you start doing it from such a young age, I mean, I was born in 1991, which was sort of the start of the rise of Lee, Richard, Michael and Anthony all together. Um, we were going to big race meets a lot. It seemed to be, feel very normal after a while. Um, yeah, it did. I was going to say, did you understand what was going on, the gravity of what was going on, or was it just, you know, that's what that's what Dad and and Mum and all the family did, and and it didn't sort of really sink in until you know you got a little bit older. Yeah, certainly, it, it didn't have it didn't really resonate to me. It didn't really resonate to me at all through school um, for the mo- for the mo- most part. Uh, I mean, Richard, my father, he sort of. Um, he stepped back from it a little bit and did his and did media, did the big sports breakfast, obviously. Um, and we came to Sydney when I was in a, still in primary school. So once I got to see, like high school, I would say, and that's those were the days when when I'd just gone into high school. Maccabi Diva was at the peak of her powers, and it started to have some. I started to take some notice of the gravity of what was happening then. I think. Um, you couldn't you couldn't miss it at that point. It was just it was so it was such a big moment in racing history that you couldn't step away from understanding that it was a, a really significant moment. And we were fortunate enough to go to the last of Maccabi Diva's Melbourne Cups. And then when you saw the emotion that was in all of Lee, Richard, Michael, and Anthony. And I mean, I was only 15 years old at the time, but you could you could understand it then. You could really see what was happening. But before then, going to big race meets, I, I wouldn't have even been able to recount any of the any of the days when they won big races. It was just often we often I, I don't think we really went. But all of us cousins, there's about 12 of us, I think we would always be doing something else. Um, so while racing was always a big part of 
of life and going to the stables and being around horses, the the enormity of what was happening probably wasn't as significant as, as you might think. Yeah, and was it spoken about in the household? I mean, like, that's one thing um, even I've, from the short time I've known your dad, is that there is that sort of on-off switch in terms of, you know, he goes to work, he does what he has to do, but when he comes home, he's not sitting there, you know, talking to your mum or, or even you when you were living there about what was happening today, what this horse is doing. There's a very sort of on-off switch, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a... It's a so being a racehorse trainer, is it's a lifestyle. You're sort of you're signing up to a lifestyle. Um, but they all had other interests. I mean, all of the brothers, they they all enjoyed their skiing. Probably my father, the most of all of them, really loved skiing. Um, we'd always have trips trips away for that. Um, and you know, each of the brothers have their own interests outside of racing. I think that's the only way they've been able to have longevity in the game is that you have the ability to, to focus on something else because otherwise it's a it's a 365 day a year job um and yeah i, I would totally agree that there, there has to be that on off switch because if you if you're on racing all the time i mean as most participants and even punters know you're not winning a whole lot of the time so if you start dwelling on racing without anything else you'll uh you start getting pretty down about things, sort of thought. Yeah. Okay, so you've you've uh, obviously uh, your old man's working up here, Big Sports Breakfast. Uh, you guys, as a family, moved to Sydney. Did you want to? I mean, were you, how old were you when you moved to Sydney? Did you want to come, or were you kicking and screaming, uh, yeah. sort of? Oh, well, I, at the time, I thought it was the end of the world. I was leaving my friends in primary school, but uh, no, we moved up here, uh, and then racing at that point really became something that. Uh, Anthony, Michael, and well, really Anthony and, and Lee for a period of time because Michael had just moved to Singapore as well. So Anthony and Lee were, were running the ship down in Melbourne, and we sort of just went a, a, about life as as if racing was was a little bit behind us, I suppose, because Richard was doing media commitments while he was still in racing. He um. He, he was wearing a few different hats at the time, actually. I think he, was, he worked for the AJC for a period of time then as well. So we were still around racing, but it, it certainly wasn't as significant as, as it once was. We weren't going to the races as much. We weren't around the stables as much. Um, and even to that point, as as all of Richard Lee, Michael and Anthony will all say that they, they get along great, but they all, they're, they're like any family that works together it can be tense at times um but the probably the one thing about moving to sydney was the fact that that tight-knit family amongst all of the children so us cousins had sort of started to everyone had started to go in different paths so to speak Mm. so coming to sydney was a culture shock in the sense that we were sort of a little bit isolated up here because it was just us in sydney but um then, but it probably it probably is a blessing in disguise because it allowed allowed particularly my sister and I to just find our own interests outside of horse racing. There was never any pressure from the family to go into horse racing, so we sort of tried to find our own path. Whether I I got right into my football, into music, um, pretty much anything I could get my hands on, and then eventually I became pretty dedicated to playing pretty good golf for a period of time so 
it was um, it was at, at coming to Sydney really grew my interests in other parts of my life, which has hopefully made me a bit more well-rounded. Because if you when you grow up with racing so so close to you, you can just become a little bit one-dimensional in the sense that it's all you know. Yeah. So you're in Sydney. So when you say that you were, you know, doing other things, when you had the opportunity to to graduate from school, you didn't go straight into racing, did you? You actually went down the path of did you, did you do university or do some yeah, sort of university? I, yeah, I went to I went to UNSW. I actually lived on campus, which was great. I always say that the closest I've ever been to work was in university because I actually lived with a lived at the university looking over Rambic Racecourse. Um, but at that time, I, I didn't have anything to do with it. So I did journalism at, at, U, at UNSW, um, which was great. Um, probably, I did, it, I did it mainly because I came out of school and was sort of a little bit perplexed as to what I was going to do at all. I was, I, um, but uni was a great time for me. I, I sort of, my first, my first dream in life was to become a golfer, and then it digressed to rock star, and then we finally <laughs> founded upon um, horse training. But I, I was I was very passionate about playing golf when I was growing up. I, I tried to go to um, the US on a golf scholarship. We didn't quite get there, but um, so you must have been pretty good then. What, what were you playing off? Uh, I was pretty close to scratch at that point. Um, so it was it was good. I was playing good enough golf, but you. One thing I give those golfers credit for is you don't know how good they are. There, there's a long there's a long distance between being a scratch golfer and making a living out of being a professional golfer. So, I uh, I probably knew at around twenty nineteen twenty years old that I, I probably wasn't going to be good enough to be at that level. Um, and then I sort of I got right into playing in some bands as a as a musician but to be fair that probably the most defining point of my life was I think I was 22 um, and I did a trip called the Mongol Rally which is when you drive in an old beaten up car from London to Mongolia so we drove all through Europe and all through um, all through Western Asia up in through Kazakhstan and around all those areas and just really opened my eyes to culture. And I think my personal, like, obviously it's very hard with COVID, but one thing that really rounded me off as a person was understanding that there are people struggling out there. We, we have a very good in Australia. And I, even even beyond that point, I've had an exceptionally privileged life, life my entire life. So I've I went out there and saw people that, don't have a lot and had happiness and I think once you realise that success isn't measured just by what your finances are or what you what you achieve in your career, you can actually start to get a bit more um, balance in your life of, of just trying to keep happy but that mm. certainly was a um, that was the big eye opener for me I was probably a, a fair to say an entitled privileged little private schoolboy until then so i uh going out and and traveling the world and doing some charity work um particularly for what, something that was what made you do that because you mentioned you know like you were the, the private school privileged kid what made you go and, and do all this did you 
Did you just wake up one day and go, oh, I'm going to do this, or...? Uh, it's sort of... It, it almost... So, it's a charity rally, so... I, I'd been talking with a couple of college friends, particularly Harry Thompson and a friend of mine called Will McKinnon, and um, at the time I said... Oh, I've, I've got to do something after I just after I finish uni. I said, I, I'm not ready. I didn't have a gap year to just go and explore a little bit and find out what I really wanted to do. And I was at a little bit of a crossroads in my life. I'd, I'd interned at Sony Music for three years and I wasn't really that in love with the, that industry at that point in time. So I got my, I got my last paycheck from, I think I was at the time I was working in the pokies at, uh, at Wharf Bar, I think, in Manly. And I said, I'm just going to throw all of that on buying a ticket and an entry into this rally. And then eventually what we did was we, we drove in an old VW Beetle um, and I'm type 1 diabetic myself. So we raised, I think we raised somewhere around 35000 for uh, kids in, in a, a little country called Tajikistan, which is just below Kazakhstan. And we actually were privileged enough to, to be a part of a, a clinic there for type 1 diabetic kids who didn't really know how to look after themselves properly. So, again, it's just one of those moments in your life that probably seemed didn't seem as significant as it was happening. I just thought, oh, this is great. This will be a good experience. But I now look back on it and think that was the point where I probably grew up a lot in that experience. Uh, I started to realise that what, it, and particularly with racing, because at that point racing started to become a genuine interest. I still still have to keep myself grounded to think that it's we're very fortunate to work in such a, a a good industry with great people, and that there are people out there that aren't doing it as well as easy as we are. So it sort of it gave me that that little bit of grounding i would have said yeah so when did the racing start mate this is what i'm most curious in because i'm I'm hearing a lot of i mean it's it's always sort of been there in the background but as you said richard um was working at sky channel um and obviously big sports breakfast before i i started here at at 2k wild sky sports radio so you then you got involved with the godolphin Flying Start program, but what yeah. made you spur into that? Because it sounds like you weren't on a racing path at all, and then all no, of a sudden no. we're we're back at the stables. What what happened? Yeah. So I, after I got back from that trip, as I said, I'd, I'd fallen out of love with the music industry. So I asked, I said to my father, I said, "Well, it'd be naive of me not to to think about going into courses, considering I've got." such a good family history in it and I was so proud of what Lee, Michael, Anthony and my father had all done in racing. So I said, all right, well, where should I start? And my old man said, all right, you can go up to Yarraman and work for Harry and Arthur. And my father himself will tell you that he talked to Harry and Arthur and I'm pretty sure he said something in the vein of just give him the worst jobs possible and we'll see if we break him. And if he can last that, if he can last that, then he might have have a future in it. But let's just try and get it, knock it out of him if we can early. Um, so I went up to Yarraman, uh, picked up sticks and stones, you know, as, as you do for the first few months. Got given jobs like holding for the holding folds for the barrier, which can be pretty brutal at times. Um, 
but I, I just sort of I, I really had an affinity for the for the for the horse at that point. Just working with horses day in day out, and I was I've always thought of myself as someone that that thinks a lot about things, and I, I think with with horses because you don't get that audible communication. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of observation that's involved with horses, and I loved trying to understand um, what horses were thinking and what they were doing and why they did it and where did it derive from. Like we've got all these herd animals that were that have all these instincts, and we've domesticated them to some extent. That it was. I just found the whole. I found the horse fascinating. Breeding probably wasn't my wasn't my forte it probably wasn't as uh like it for lack of a better term it wasn't uh it it wasn't quick enough for me it was it was a long process and like they they do a fantastic job with farms up here in scone but it just it wasn't my calling so then after about 12 months with with yaram and i went and worked for greg bennett who was uh, who had used to catch the school bus with all of the Friedman brothers um, in Canberra. So Greg took me on and, and showed me the basics of horse training and w- was a really significant part for me. So I did that for another six to 12 months and then I was very fortunate to get um, selected on the Godolphin Flying Start program. And that obviously, that, that program, you go right around the world and you see a lot of different things, don't you? Yeah, so you start in Ireland and you travel to the UK, America, back to Australia, um, and then to Dubai and then back to Ireland. But the two-year course, um, we started, I started still very green, um, but by the time I finished the course, I was, again, a much a much more knowledgeable horse racing participant because I think if you can have an understanding of everybody's role in horse racing, you can actually start to understand what your role is and where you're going to find your best position. So I went in wanting to be a horse trainer, of course, but there were times when I got exposed to bloodstock agents that I'd never would have talked to. And look, it's an incredible program that produces incredible humans um, that are great for horse racing. I mean, you've only got to look at the first cohort where you have Henry Field. Um, you've got Adrian Bott coming off the course, Vicky Leonard, it's like I, I'm missing plenty of people. I, I don't want to start listing off because I'll miss them in yeah. once. But uh, it's Sheikh Mohammed. For all, Godolphin's obviously been a huge um, part of Australian racing for a good time now. But I, I think I think this Godolphin Flying Start program may be a, a significant part of his legacy in horse racing. So because the the people that he's produced off it are just becoming more and more significant as the years come on. So you've done the, the flying start. You return then from that particular program and then you sit down at the dinner table and say, righto, mum, dad, I want to do this. And does that then really spur your old man to make a return with you? He wanted to do that with you? Yeah, so Michael had just come back from Hong Kong. As sort of I was finishing the course and... Michael had just started at Rose Hill to begin with and, and then eventually moved to, to Randwick. And Richard had just started pre-training for Michael. Um, and I'd just come back at that time. So I helped Richard begin at Hawkesbury pre-training predominantly for Michael and some other good clients, including China Horse Club, 
Um, and then from there, Michael then, sorry, he, Michael had come back from Singapore, I should say. Um, and then Michael got the opportunity to go to Hong Kong. So Richard sat back and was like, well, I can't pre-train without Michael. So we were sort of contemplating what we were going to do. Um, and then eventually, I think it just, not by chance, but we just put in so much work to get the business up and going at Hawkesbury. We just thought, well, let's have a, I shouldn't say we, Richard said, let's have a try to uh, of training out here. And we were fortunate enough to get two decent horses, um, one being Latin Boy at the time, who went on and won five in a row or something, something like that. And then we also had Old Ubre, who was had who was on the last chance saloon for China Horse Club and we were able to turn him around. Um, and then eventually we realised that the only way to get better horses was to have a city base at that point. Um, so we moved to to Rose Hill um, together and uh, yeah, we, we grew a stable from about eight horses into about well, I don't know eight horses on the book to that point. Uh, and then by the time I, by the time Michael came back from Hong Kong, there was about a hundred on the books in the space of about 18 months, two years. So it was just, it, it was hard work and it was all, we set up shop a lot, but we, uh, it was something I learned a lot, having more responsibility and, um, and working with my father closely, which I think, I think you're right. I think it did drive him to get back into the sport, but he, um, it's one of those things. Once you once you're back and you're 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 in the game again, it's it's hard to uh, turn it off. So Richard is obviously going great guns with Michael. What about for yourself though to work um, with your dad? That must have been pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we had heated conversations. I was probably <laughs> I probably thought I knew more than I did. And the one thing I think every business owner will tell you is that when you work for someone, it's, you always think you know more than you do until you're the one that has to make the decisions and live by the decisions that are made. So I would always be questioning Richard and what he's doing. And now I look back on it after starting my own venture and think I probably wasn't fully aware of the pressures he was going through at the time. Um, even though I was quite forthright in my opinions. Uh, I, I just found that I think that worked well for us at the time because I, I think Richard and Michael are quite progressive in their thinking. And I think that's what, and I think most of the Friedman brothers are, that, that's what keeps them relevant. They're always willing to, to push the boundary or try something new. Um, and with no, with, with the greatest respect, I think, Richard being able to observe the likes of Chris Waller coming up to Rose Hill probably expanded his thinking as well. Um, Chris Waller's system, every trainer has always been about systems, but I think Chris Waller was doing it at a a new level. And I think Richard was able to observe that and and probably took a lot from, from watching Chris as well. Yeah. The moment you decide to go to Scone, I want to talk about this because I've had a conversation with you about it off air and it's something that, um, I really respect in you personally is the fact that I know that you're, you know, you, your father was very keen to have you in, in a bit of a partnership situation like we see, you know, with obviously your cousin Sam uh, there in Victoria and we see it with other, you know, fathers and sons in the game, the the, the McAvoys, etc. But 
you were very adamant you wanted to do this on your own. You you wanted to go to a country location or go to a different location in New South Wales and pretty much start from scratch. Much to the the not bewilderment. That's probably not the right word, but just the. The push from the family was, no, stay, stay, there's an opportunity here, but you you want to do this on your own two feet, which I really, really respect. Yeah, look, the the, the original plan was always for Richard and I to partner it when, before Michael had come back. Michael, and I think it's been great for both Michael and Richard that Michael came back, but I um, at, there was a long period of time where the natural progression was me to partner with my father, Um I wouldn't say I got pushed out. There was always there was always a conversation that was had as to um, what was going to happen and if that what was in my best interest. Um, but I just couldn't see Richard and Michael competing against one another. I thought it was I thought that was going to make this life difficult for everybody. So I um, I think and they work well together. So I, I eventually thought of took a step back and thought. There's only really one way to learn how if you can train or not, and that's by doing it. And I mean, the, I, I have the greatest respect for what Animal Nation has been able to achieve in such a peri- small period of time. She started at, at a similar time to me um, and has been going great. Um, same with Blake Ryan, probably went down a similar path. But there are plenty of people in the industry that want to help young people get going. Um, and... When you have the when you have the safety net of a of a father or an uncle behind you, um, sometimes it can actually uh, what's the word for it? It can it can sometimes restrict you from meeting people that and owners that you may not have if you went on your own. So mm. I sort of I, I thought about I thought about it through quite a lot, and I could have stayed and bided my time, but I thought let's just. There's no time like the present to, <laughs> to have a crack. And I, I'm not saying I thought it was going to be easy, but I certainly didn't think it was going to be as hard as it was. Um, my partner, Rachel, and I moved up to Scone after we made a decision. I spoke to Michael, and Michael said, it, you've got my blessing if you want to have a crack, and we'll try and send you some, some off-casts, ones that aren't coping in the city. And Richard sort of said the same and said, you may as well, you may as well find out whether you can train or not. So I um yeah I, I I just made the decision pretty quickly actually it wasn't something I mulled over for a long time I've always been a person that once I make a decision and I'm committed I'm I'm all in so I've found found eight boxes off course at Scone and I probably only could fill three of them to begin with with um really some loyal clients which were in dynamic syndications and. Uh, Sue Woodcock and June Baker, they all sort of gave me a few horses to, to get going and fortunately was able to get a win early enough and build off some momentum and uh, I guess we're 18 months down the path now and we've got about 30 in work. So it's, wow. um, it's been it's been a, a, a big eye-opening experience, as I said previously. You just don't know the pressures of running your own business until you're doing it. Yeah, and a bit of a culture shock too because, I mean, um, you know, you're dealing with, you know, when you're working at Rose Hill, you're going from Randwick, you might be going to Wyong or a, or a Kemmler, et cetera, or maybe a Goulburn, but 
you know, the, the when I talk to you, and I'm, you know, preface it, we're mates, so I might ring you on a Monday and you'll be here and then I ring you here and you'll be, you know, hundreds of kilometres away here or yeah. you won't be getting home. And, I mean, it, it's a... It's it's a it's a you're right. You're sort of managing your own business, but you're always. It seems like you're never actually sometimes in that one location. You're never home. No, it's it's a it's a it's certainly a very, it's it's the lifestyle for a country trainer. I can tell is has gotten tougher um, for a lot of guys out here. You got to remember that the roads out to these places from the city have improved tenfold in the last twenty years. Yeah, I mean. I, Scone would have hardly been on the radar for most city stables 20 years ago. In fact, it wouldn't have been. Um, it had taken you four and a half hours to get here, which was simply too far. So, yeah, like we, we go to now. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, I, when, I was a, when I was working for Richard and Michael, we'd go to Bathurst and we'd go to Musselbrook, and I'd think, God, where the hell are we? Now they seem like premier locations for me. Um, yeah. And that's... That's just because country trainers are, are, are having to go a little bit further and a little bit wider to to find some winnable races for their horses. I mean, the the, the concept's still very much the same in the country. Is you've got to place horses where they can win. Um, so it's yeah, I, I'm pretty well adverse to where I am in New South Wales geographically. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it, it it can often it's can often be very, very stressful on your personal life as a country trainer particularly, um, just with the amount of miles and the amount of time you spend away from home. Um, but I'm very fortunate to have Rachel, who's been a rock for me since I've been here, who's been very tolerant. Um, but uh, look, it's, it's it's just part of the caper now. Um, and you can sort of, I can sort of understand why I say, Cody Nestor has felt like he needs a break is because it's it's quite taxing for a for a, a growing business particularly that's expanding all the time and the pressures that come with expansion um, with staff and uh, yeah and the amount of and the amount of thinking time you need to give each horse to get the best out of them so um, yeah there's a, there's certainly a lot of miles in country training these days and. I think that's just something we're going to have to deal with. Where do you see yourself, uh, before we wrap this up, mate, where do you see yourself in, in 10 years' time? What's the goal? You've always got to set goals. Um, what's on your radar? Uh, I, uh, the goal will be to get closer to Sydney, if if not be in Sydney in the next 10 years. it's. Uh, I am extremely grateful for where I am now and what I've built for now, but my goal is still ambitious to have high-quality animals that can win high-quality races. Um, country country horses, limited horses in ability uh, can be, can be uh, challenging because you've got to try and extract that out of them, and I'll always be um, grateful for doing that. But testing yourself against the, elite, the, uh, the best of the elite trainers in town is is still where I, I want to see myself. And hopefully that some people will realise that uh, that, I, that I've sort of paid my dues out here and be willing to give me a chance to do so. That's sort of... That has always been the goal of this stage of my life is making sure people know that I've done the hard yards and learnt how to train, you know, limited 
horses uh, and trying to get the best out of them so they know when they send a nice horse, I'll try everything possible to get it out of them. That, that's certainly the, the goal for now. Pleasure talking to you, mate. We could we could have kept just talking and talking. Um, you're uh, you're very. What do they say? Um, uh, an old wise head on young shoulders. So I think you're going to be around for a very long time. Thanks for coming on, and good luck with all the runners coming up, uh, not only this week but in the weeks to come. Legend. Thanks, Dave.